One of the things that politicians get criticized for is that they tend to make great promises to us and then not deliver on those promises. During election campaigns, they fill us with hope. But very often, as we all know, those hopes really come to nothing. And that should not surprise us. I think most politicians are actually decent people. I don't believe they set out to make false promises to us. It's just that much of the time, they're not able to deliver what they promise. Maybe it's red tape that they run into. Maybe it's lack of resources. And there's a whole lot of other stuff that just blocks their way. Human beings cannot always fulfill the promises they make. But this morning, you and I need to know that our God is not like that. We need to know that when we hope in Him, our hopes will never be disappointed. We need to know that when He makes a promise, He can be trusted. Always. That's what the Apostle Paul is going to show us this morning. We are in Romans chapter 8. And if you haven't found that yet, it's page 1135, or in the large print, 1755. And let me remind you of the context here. Last week we looked at verses 18 to 25. And we saw God's promise of future glory. Those who have faith in Christ become brothers and sisters of Christ. We're adopted as God's children. And as God's children, we are also heirs. We have a glorious inheritance ahead of us. And Paul told us that inheritance outweighs our present sufferings, whatever those sufferings are. He went on then to describe the shape of that inheritance. It's a renewed creation. A creation liberated from its frustration and its bondage to decay. Paul told us that as God's children, we will take our place one day in that new heaven and earth. We'll have redeemed, renewed bodies. We'll be fit for a new heaven and earth. Paul said that is our great hope. And we're to wait for it expectantly and patiently. And now in our passage this morning, Paul wants to give us firm grounds for that hope. As we look forward to future glory, we can trust the God who glorifies. Earlier in Romans 8, Paul told us the Holy Spirit leads God's children. He told us the Spirit assures God's children that they are God's children. And now we read in verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. First of all, in these verses, we're told that as we wait for future glory, God helps us in our present weakness. When verse 26 says, in the same way, I take that to mean, just as the Spirit leads us, and just as the Spirit assures us of our adoption, so he also helps us in our weakness. How are you and I weak? Well, surely the better question is, how aren't we weak? We've got more weaknesses than we can list. Mental, physical and emotional. We easily become overburdened and overstressed. We're prone to depression and exhaustion, fear and confusion. Our bodies are prone to all sorts of weaknesses. Very often our resolve is weak in the face of temptation. There's no part of us that isn't touched by weakness. People who act like they're above weakness are only acting. They're pretending. But Paul says, in our weakness, the Holy Spirit comes to our aid. He helps us. God doesn't just say, we'll see if these weak creatures of mine, these weak children of mine, make it to future glory. No, God steps in to help us get to future glory. He doesn't leave us to stagger alone under our burdens. Our weakness is not the last word on our situation. The Spirit who's in us doesn't just sit by and watch. He joins in. He's active on our behalf. And Paul is very specific about what the Spirit does in the middle of verse 26. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. A lot of the time when we pray, when we bring a situation to God, we might know what we personally want in that situation. But we really don't know what the truly best outcome would be. Someone told me once about a particular result they were praying for in their personal situation. And this person said, if God doesn't give me this, if he doesn't give me this result I'm praying for, I just couldn't accept that outcome. That individual was certain that what they wanted was best. And if God disagreed, well, then God made a mistake. Now, I don't think many of us are quite like that when we pray. We know that we don't see the whole picture. We know that God does. And we want to pray in line with God's wisdom. The trouble is, we don't know what that is. Not in the day-to-day details. 
And Paul says it's at that point the Holy Spirit steps in and intercedes for us through wordless groans. The word groans picks up on what we saw last week. Last week we saw that today creation is groaning. It's longing to be set free from its frustration. And as God's children, we groan inwardly, longing for our future glory. And now we learn the Spirit joins in. He groans on our behalf. And the reason that's so helpful is because the Spirit's groans are always in line with God's will. That's good. But it does probably raise a question. Do we not need to pray then? If the Spirit does it for us. Well, it's assumed here that the Spirit intercedes as we pray. It's as you and I, in all of our weakness and our lack of understanding of what's best, as we bring our requests to God anyway, while that's going on, the Spirit steps in, He takes our muddled prayers, He shapes them in accordance with the will of God, and God hears, and God answers. And the answer is yes every time. Maybe not yes to what we prayed, but yes to the Spirit who has fixed our prayers. So what we have to take from this is not, I don't need to pray because the Spirit prays for me. No, the point is, I can pray with confidence. Supreme confidence. Because even when in my weakness I'm actually sincerely praying for the wrong thing, believing it's the right thing, even then the Spirit will make my prayer right. So not a single prayer will ever be wasted. Maybe you've had situations where you've prayed and prayed for something and what actually happened was the opposite to what you prayed for. Paul is telling us that's okay. The Spirit reshaped your prayers in that situation. And God answered those prayers to accomplish His will. Martin Luther said it's not a bad sign when we get the opposite of what we prayed for. Why? Because the counsel and will of God far excel our counsel and will. If you or I ask God for bread, he might not give us exactly the bread we asked for. But he certainly won't give us a stone. And in the long run, what he gives will be better for us than what we asked for. So pray with confidence. Even when you're not sure what to pray. In every situation, Present your requests to God. Just bring them. And your prayer will be heard. And in the safe hands of the Holy Spirit, it will bring about what is best. Let me just mention another application of these verses. I know that for us as a fellowship, Alzheimer's and dementia are very real issues. 
Some of you are facing this personally. And some of you are facing it alongside somebody that you love. Surely there is great encouragement for us in these verses. Now I don't know the mechanics of this. But if the Spirit helps us in our weakness, that includes the weakness of a mind that's slipping away from us. We have assurance here that even when our minds have let go of the whole concept of prayer, somewhere still, deep in the heart of God's children, the Holy Spirit is still at his post. He still finds that part of us that's reaching out for our Father. And he takes that wordless longing and he carries it to our Father. So please don't think that when your mind has gone or when your loved one's mind has gone, don't think God will just leave you alone. The Holy Spirit will not leave you. He won't leave you until you're safely in the glory God has prepared for you. Your mind may have gone long before that. But the Holy Spirit will stay at his post. He'll stay there until you are safely home. The God who promises us future glory will give us all the help we need to get to glory. That includes help in our present weakness. And it also includes comprehensive help. Verse 28 tells us, God works in all things for our good. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This verse is as comprehensive as you can get. There are no restrictions in this verse. God works in all things for our good. That includes suffering. It includes weakness. Every circumstance of our lives. Even the evil plans of other people. Even our own sin. Now notice, Paul is not saying all things are good. Our own sin is certainly not good in any way. Tragedy and loss and betrayal are not good. But verse 28 tells us none of those bad things can outmaneuver our God. He will work for our good in all of it. Think of everything in your life as a thread. God takes even the threads of difficulty and pain and he weaves them so they contribute to his good purpose for us. Even the ugly threads will play their part in producing something good. And in the Bible, the life of Joseph gives us a great example of that. You remember Joseph of the multicolor coat. His brothers betrayed him. They sold him into slavery in Egypt. There was nothing good about what the brothers did. There was nothing good about their intentions. 
Yet in God's plan, Joseph was raised from prison to become prime minister of Egypt. God gave him insight to prepare for a famine that was coming. And many lives were saved through Joseph's work. When Joseph finally met his brothers again, he was able to say to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. An even more striking example is the death of Jesus Christ. There was nothing good about Jesus' death. Crucifixion was one of the cruelest things the human race has ever dreamed up. There was nothing good about those people who overthrew justice and had Jesus crucified even though he was innocent and yet in God's plan out of that evil came eternal salvation for all who trust in Jesus were the Jewish leaders and Pilate guilty of evil were Joseph's brothers guilty of evil yes all of them were And will God hold them accountable? Yes. The fact that God works good out of human evil doesn't excuse those who do human evil. But it does give confidence to those who suffer human evil. God will work even that for your good. He'll do the same with every single circumstance of your life. Think for a moment of your greatest disappointment to date in your life. Think of it and realize God will work that for your good. Now I said there are no restrictions on the all things, but this verse as a whole does contain two important qualifications. First of all, verse 28 does not say In all things, God works for the good of all people. No, he works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, in one sense, everyone who's heard the good news about Jesus has been called. The good news includes an invitation to respond. But the New Testament also talks about a kind of call that's not just an invitation. It's a kind of call that actually produces a response in people. And that's the sense of the word call here. Verse 28 is talking about those who've not only heard God's invitation, that invitation has produced an effect in them. It has brought them into God's family. And we're told these people who have God working for their good are men and women who love God. According to the New Testament, those who truly love God show it by putting their trust in his son Jesus. So the promise that God works in all things for good is only for those who've responded to God's call. They've shown their love for God by accepting his son as their Lord. That's the first important qualification in verse 28. The second is to do with the word good. 
God works all things for good and God gets to define what good is. We've already seen that in our prayers, we don't know what to ask for. Not really. In any given situation, we ask for what seems good to us. But our view and our understanding are so limited, we don't always know what's good. And that's equally true when it comes to bringing good out of all things in our lives. Only God sees all and knows all. Only God can discern what's truly for our good. So if we are convinced that our own plans and desires are always good, well then eventually we'll decide verse 28 isn't true. Because a whole lot of what God does will not seem good to us. Not while we're going through it anyway. The good God is working for is our ultimate eternal good. And that won't always feel good in the present. We have to trust that God knows what's ultimately for our good. We started by saying that verse 28 is a comprehensive promise. For God's children, nothing is left out of the all things that God works for our good. And so do you see what that means for us? It means we can't sort of believe verse 28. We either believe it or we don't. The verse says all things. If we believe God works in some things, or even most things for our good, then we don't believe verse 28. We either buy into the all things, or we're left actually with nothing. Because if we settle for believing that God works 99% of things for our good, then the next tough situation in your life is always going to feel like the one thing that's not included in the 99%. And if that 1% gives God the slip, couldn't it mess up the whole plan that God has for you? Little things can mess up big things. Like the nursery rhyme, where the lost nail led to a lost shoe that led to a lost horse that led to a lost rider, then a lost message, then a lost battle, and finally a lost kingdom. Small things can mess up big things. So if God can only work 99% of your life for good, you have reason to be very worried about the future. That one, if that 1% gets away from God, could do you a lot of damage. The point is, if we half believe verse 28, we're really no better off than if we didn't believe it at all. But if we will believe it, if we'll build our life on this foundation, then our life has an unshakable foundation then we have a confidence that can't be destroyed by cancer. 
or bereavement or unemployment or injury. It can't be destroyed by a failure to reach our personal goals. It can't be destroyed by unwanted singleness or rebellious children or any of the other things that you and I would never ever choose to go through. None of those things I listed are good. But we have God's promise He will work for our good in the midst of even those things. You might recognize this American monument. Anyone know the name of that mountain? Mount Rushmore, okay, in South Dakota. With the heads of four presidents carved into it. I won't ask you to name the president. If you go online, you can find various other heads stuck on the end. Most of us recognize that. But you're less likely to recognize this. This is just a few miles from Mount Rushmore. And that depicts Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse was a Native American warrior. And this is the Crazy Horse Memorial. Or actually, this is a model of the planned Crazy Horse Memorial. This is a model at the foot of quite a big mountain. The actual memorial is intended to be much bigger than the Mount Rushmore Memorial. And work began on it in 1948. 66 years ago. And after 66 years, here's what the actual memorial looks like today. Now that is not quite as impressive as the model. And who knows if that memorial will ever be completed. Funding has been very hard to get. The original sculptor has now died. And the replacement sculptor has decided to alter the plans for this mountain. The makers of this monument started something very, very grand. But they started something they didn't have the ability to finish. And at the end of our passage this morning, Paul wants to assure us our God is not like that. We've seen that on our way to future glory, God helps us in the present. He works in all things for our good. And the end of verse 28 told us God's work has a purpose. He's working with a goal in mind. And in verses 29 to 30, Paul tells us God finishes what he starts. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Those verses contain an unbreakable chain. Some preachers have called it a golden chain. 
It's a chain that stretches from eternity past all the way to eternity future. We could describe these verses as giving us God's eternal sculpting project. If you're a child of God by adoption, you're the project God is working on. In the context of the passage, verses 29 and 30, explain the purpose that was mentioned at the end of verse 28. Here's the good God is working for in your life. Paul uses five words to describe the five stages of God's sculpting work. And you'll notice every person included in stage one is also included in stages two, three, four, and five. No one falls through the cracks along the way. Those God starts with in verse 29 are also those he finishes with. Those who are foreknown by God will be the exact same people who are finally glorified by God. No one falls through the cracks. So let's look at the stages of this unbreakable chain. First, verse 29 tells us God foreknew certain people. And this took place in eternity past, before creation. But what does it mean for God to foreknow someone? Does it mean he knew about them? Well, in one sense, yes. But God knows about everybody. And verse 29 isn't talking about everybody. We know that because those God foreknew are the same group who will eventually be glorified. So this group doesn't include everybody. So what does it mean for God to foreknow people? Well, here's another reference in the Bible that might help us. This is God speaking to Israel through the prophet Amos. God says to Israel, You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Literally, the text reads, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. But clearly, God did know about all the other nations. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. He wasn't oblivious to them being there. So when he says, I only knew Israel, the sense is, I not only knew about her, but I looked on her differently than those other nations. The Bible tells us the way he looked on Israel differently was by setting his love on her. Deciding to enter into a special relationship with her. And that wasn't because she was any better than those other nations. It was just because God chose her out of those nations. And so the NIV is accurate when it translates, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. That's what God is saying. And that helps us understand the word foreknow here in Romans 8, 29. God knew about everyone he would create. But he chose to set his love on some of them. The word foreknow is equivalent to foreloved. Not because they were going to be better than any of the others. 
but just because of his grace. Well, then comes the second link in the chain. Those God foreknew, he also predestined. That means he predetermined their destiny. He made detailed plans for the sculpting work he was going to do in their lives. And Paul tells us what model God is using when he does that sculpting work. Paul tells us his aim is that God's people be conformed to the image of God's Son. This is the good verse 28 was talking about. In all things, God is working to make us more like Jesus. That is our destiny, to be finally like Jesus. Now, in terms of how you and I respond to this, this is not an excuse to live how we like and presume we'll still be glorified in the end. This is not an excuse to live lazy, careless lives, all the while banking on things turning out okay because, well, I'm predestined. You can't get that from verse 29. God did not predestine people so they could be lazy in their sin. He did it so they would pursue conformity to Jesus Christ. So they would make it their goal to be like Jesus Christ. So if you don't care about being like Jesus, please don't sit around thinking you're predestined. On the other hand, if you are pursuing the destiny God has given you, then do it with courage and with confidence. By God's power, you will arrive at your destiny. There may be failures along the way. Maybe some failures that have serious consequences for you. There will be times when you fall flat on your face. But you cannot ultimately fail. As you pursue conformity to Christ, you are doing it knowing that heaven is with you. You're not pursuing some impossible destiny you dreamed up for yourself. You're pursuing the destiny God himself planned for you. He will support you until you get there. Predestination is encouragement for those who love God. It's not false security for those who just want to get out of hell card. And those God foreknew and predestined, he also called. The sense here is not just that he invited those people into his family, he also overcame their rebellion against his call. And he actually brought them into his family. We touched on that earlier. Someone has said the kind of call we're talking about here is not like calling a dog. When you call a dog, the dog may or may not come running to you. In my case, never. 
But this kind of call is more like the call God gave at creation when he called light to come out of darkness. Or like the call Jesus gave to Lazarus to come out of the tomb. We're talking about a call that achieves a response. And those who respond to that effective call from God are then justified. They're declared to be in the right with God. So if you're sitting here this morning and you are trusting in Jesus for your salvation, realize that God has been working from eternity past to get you to this point. Heaven has taken great care and attention to get you here. God has caused all the circumstances of your life to work together to get you here. And realize God's good purpose for you is not finished yet. There's one more link in the chain. Those God justified, he also glorified. That's a reference to your inheritance as a child of God, future glory. A day will come when you are finally conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You're finally fit for eternity in God's new heaven and earth. On that day, God's sculpting work in you will be complete. God will have shaped you into someone glorious. That's what he has planned to do from eternity past. And notice in verses 29 and 30, all five links in this chain are in the same tense. Even though the last link is still in the future for you and me. Why is that? Simply because from God's viewpoint, the last link in the chain is just as certain as the first four links. Even though from our point of view it's still in the future. God is not like human planners. Human sculptors and human builders don't always manage to do what they plan to do. Their grand projects don't always get finished. But God is not like that. His resources never run out. Even before the world began, God laid his plans for you. And those plans never need to be rethought or redrawn. They're perfect plans and God has been steadily fulfilling them in your life. Every day of your life. And God will finish what he started. 